I am honored uh, to get the privilege to speak to you um, on this Easter Sunday. Uh, this is quite the honor. It's a privilege um, to get to serve the body of Christ on such a day. And that's be- what I believe um, I've been called to do is serve the body of Christ. And so in my role and capacity as, uh, is, as that's probably not good. As a family pastor here, um, that's my desire is to serve you, to serve you well. In my heart, my real passion is for us to know the truth of God's Word, for us to know it and to live it. I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about knowing what God's Word really says and really means to us, and then how that should compel us to live and to act and to be. And so, um, always, as, as you hear me teach or as you hear me share, please know that's my heart. My heart is that we just know the true and loving God for who He is, because there are a lot of different um, there are a lot of different images of God out there. As we sh- as as He mentioned earlier, as my dad mentioned earlier, um, teaching begins to to be kind of changed and molded and shaped to sound something that sounds more appealing to us. When there's a lot of times we encounter God and we encounter Him in the Scriptures, and it, it doesn't appeal to us. But that means we're the ones that need changing and not God, right? And so I strongly desire for us to know the true God, even if that God doesn't sound like somebody we, that said, that doesn't sound like God. That doesn't feel like the God that I know. Because the reality of that is then you don't know the true God if he doesn't sound that way. That's not part of this message this morning, but it just came to me as, as I was uh, praying and thinking about that moment and the truth of God's Word, and just something I talk about a lot. I'm really, really passionate about us knowing the Word of God. So this morning, um, we get to share, we get to, we get to share in this moment, we get to learn more about uh, this resurrection, this new life that today represents. This day doesn't represent death, it represents new life. There are four events that radically transformed all of mankind. Four events, and they all include the same person. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Those four things transformed all of mankind. His birth, a birth that miraculously came through the Virgin Mary, one that represented the impending redemption of mankind. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. Hundreds, thousands of years had proclaimed this coming Messiah who was going to bring about redemption, a life. So his birth and then his life, a life lived pure, holy, blameless before God. One that demonstrated the life that we were called to live, but incapable of. Only he could do. That third event is his death, a death that endured extensive suffering for all of mankind. The Bible says the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. A death that we deserved but don't receive. The sinless dying for the sinful. Do we realize that the sinless died for the sinful, you and I. And lastly, 
what we're going to spend our time on this morning is a resurrection. So these four events, the birth, life, death, resurrection, that was supernaturally orchestrated, a divine miracle that resulted in victory over death, hell, and the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead. But before we get there, I want to back up in the story for just a moment because we are on the tail end of a seven-day span that began last week with Palm Sunday, right? It began last Sunday with Palm Sunday. So I want you to just imagine yourself, if you can, for a moment, about 2,000 years ago, just put yourself in that place and in that time you're wearing sandals. Maybe you're barefooted. It's dusty. That's going to be a reality there. A week ago, you celebrated Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna. He's this Savior, this anticipated Savior, King of the Jews. He was riding a donkey, which may have been a little bit surprising to you, unless you remembered the, uh, the, the Old Testament prophets. In, so in, in Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey this was the fulfillment of prophecy those who would have remembered and known this would have seen this since then this we're still in this seven day span we welcomed him didn't we we welcomed him shouting hosanna since then he's driven money changers out of the temple these people who did not belong in the temple doing what they should not have been doing. He's healed the blind and the lame. An interesting story that happens during that week is he's he made a fig tree wither and die. I don't know if you recall that story within that seven-day span, but he found a fig tree, searched it for fruit, and it was not producing fruit, and so he cursed it, and it withered and died. He participated in the Last Supper with his disciples in the midst of his betrayer, Judas. How many of you like to dine with your enemy? Nobody has their hand up. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples prior to his arrest. There we see Jesus demonstrate his humanity. It's important that we understand Jesus' humanity, that he was a man like you and I. The reason I say we see him demonstrate his humanity is Mark 14 says that he was sorrowful and he was greatly distressed and troubled. We see his humanity. We see him experiencing emotion of mankind. Jesus was a real man who experienced real emotions, real pain, and real temptation. In that garden, he experienced that. We'll share that. We'll talk about that in just one moment. Then we see him turned over to Caiaphas and the religious leaders, then to the Roman government and Pilate. Now, here we come to the final days. Some of this, the very same people shouting Hosanna 
excited to see the Savior, the Messiah, come back to redeem his people, are now shouting, crucify him. The very same people. Here we are, remember, we are these people. We've imagined ourselves back in this time period. And I imagine many of us would say to ourselves, that wouldn't be us. We wouldn't transition from rejoicing, shouting Hosanna, to shouting, crucify him. We would like to think that, wouldn't we? At this point, Jesus is beaten, he's mocked, he's spat on, then ultimately hung on a cross to die. Then on Friday, Good Friday, he's taken from that cross and he's placed in a tomb. One thing I want to point out that I noticed about the last seven days that Jesus walked on the earth as a man is this. He was doing the will of the Father until the very end. Knowing his impending death, he was committed to the will of the Father until the very end. In the temple, he sought to uphold the sacredness of the house of prayer. He knew what didn't belong in the house of God, and he rid it of it. The fig tree. He demonstrated God's heart. We see this throughout Scripture. He demonstrated God's heart towards fruitlessness. He cursed the fig tree. It withered and died. He also used that the next day to teach the disciples a lesson on faith. Here he was continuing to do the will of the Father. Judas. Scripture doesn't plainly say this within the... the, um, the account of the Last Supper, but here's, where it, here's how I see this, is, is this way. He dined with Judas, his enemy. I think he demonstrated a love for your enemy, because what does Jesus say? He says to love your enemies. Here he is dining in the presence of his enemy. Like I say, I don't think I would want to be <laughs> in that place. Then we see the garden temptation. When I say that, he's, he's struggling with this will. If it's not your will, God, if, here's, here's my will. But if you could take this cup from me, please do so. But not my will, your will. He's dealing with the temptation. He talks about how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's facing temptation. So what did he demonstrate? He demonstrated that the power of the spirit can overcome that of the flesh. On the cross, here's another, my final example here of doing the Father's will until the very end. On the cross, some of, in some of his final words and in a final act, he demonstrates his love for the lost. Luke 23, 34 says this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He has a love for the lost. He has a love for those who do not know him. Forgive them, Father. Friday passes, the Sabbath comes. So he's laid to rest on Friday. Then they have the Sabbath. Nobody's working on the Sabbath. They're resting. Then everything goes silent. 
It's a silent day. It's Saturday. Jesus is dead. The disciples scatter just as Jesus told them on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 26, 31 says this, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So where's God? Where's our king and where's our savior? He's dead. We're in this moment. We're experiencing this. This Messiah, this savior, this redeeming king is gone. How do we feel about that? How do we respond to that? John Awachekwa says this, that I think is key to remember in this moment of silence, in this day of the Sabbath, in this Saturday where there's no activity going on, is this. God's activity isn't limited to your awareness of his activity. I'm going to read that line again. God's activity isn't limited to your awareness of his activity. Just because you don't see God at work and see God moving doesn't mean God's not moving and God's at work. And that is exactly what was taking place in the silence, in the stillness of the Sabbath. Now we begin this morning's message. That was just catching us up to this point. And I want to I preface this by saying this, the birth, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord are foundational truths of our faith. Without them, there is no salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. So real events real consequences, real Jesus. I share this because this morning I'm not, uh, my message will point to these realities, but I'm not necessarily making a case for its validity. Does that make sense? This isn't a case, I'm not trying to prove to you historical fact, but what I'm trying to say is this was a real event with real consequences that included a real Jesus. Okay, glad I got that clear. So I'm going to start this morning really in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. It says this, But on the first day of the week, here's where I have a first problem with this verse. It begins with the word, but on the first day of the week. But is a conjunction. The definition is this, used to introduce a phrase or clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned or said. Or another definition, used to indicate the impossibility of anything other than what is being stated. So it begins with, but on the first day of the week in Luke 24.1. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back. What is it saying, but? What is it saying something other than? Here we'll pick up in Luke 23. Joseph of Arimathea has asked for the body of Jesus wrapped him in a linen shroud, laid him in the tomb. So let's pick up in verse 54. So Luke 23, 54. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. 
the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for one moment. Father God, this morning I ask that your, God, your word becomes alive to us. Reveal to our hearts, Father, the, the truth of your word, the reality of your death, the reality of your resurrection, and in how we find new life through your resurrection, that our old self has passed away and we have been made new. I pray that we grow in our love and our faithfulness and our belief in you and in the power of your name. We trust in the living hope, that confident expectation of a future reality. We rest in that. With our belief, rids us of fear. We have nothing to fear because we believe in the risen Savior. Let these words that come forth, God, be of your spirit and be of your word. And begin to plant seeds in our heart, Father, that we may grow in our likeness of you. Amen. So here we have the women. They've gone and they've seen the tomb and they've seen the body of Christ and they've gone to prepare ointments and spices for the body. So let's go back to verse 24. Verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in, what I love this word, dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, I love this line, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And then here's the greatest line, he is not here, but has risen. Remember, he's telling them, these, these two men are telling them, remember, how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, referring to the disciples, and to all the rest. I don't know how many people that was. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them. So, uh, uh, several women in this instance, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went in, or he went home marveling at what had happened. So there are multiple accounts of the resurrection, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Many use different people uh, in them and, and make accounts for different people being there. You know, John talks about 
Peter and the beloved disciple going to the tomb, the beloved disciple being, we think, John. So we have all these references, and they're just showcasing different elements. I just share that because in reading through them all, it seems confusing. If you read all the accounts, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it can get confusing because they're talking about different people. I chose Luke this morning. That's just a sidebar, just to reference what I believe and love about the Word of God and its truth and inerrancy. So verse 6, it says, He is not here, but has risen. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what represents new life for us. After his resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people over a 40-day span. We could end the service right there and go home. Some of you don't cheer. Some of you wanted to cheer right there. So, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading the accounts across the Gospels, there was a common theme that, rose a que- that brought up a question in my mind and in my heart. Why does it keep referencing this? And it brought me to two conclusions that I want to touch on this morning that kind of sum up um, what I feel God laid on my heart for this morning. The first thing that I gathered from these accounts is this. Jesus didn't meet man's expectations. The expectation that man had for Jesus, he didn't meet that expectation. Seems odd. It seems like you're probably questioning, like, hey, should we get rid of this guy and move him off the stage right now? He didn't meet the expectation of man. First, they didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. We see this in this passage. The women didn't go to the tomb expecting to find it empty. They had prepared spices and ointment for a proper burial. They went there expecting to see the Savior in the tomb. And then in Luke 24, 10 and 11, when the women delivered the news, what does it say to the apostles? They didn't. They thought it was an idle tale. They didn't believe the women that this had actually happened. They didn't believe So if we go on further in Luke 24, I want to point out some more examples here. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. Here we have the apostles gathered together, and this is when Jesus, you know, walking through walls, he just appears to them in a locked room. As they were talking about these things that they had heard from the disciples who had just come from the road on the road to Emmaus and witnessed Jesus, they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you, the Prince of Peace. Jesus brought peace. The peace he brought was peace between you and God. We were at war. Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. You see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you got anything here to eat? 
They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. So in Luke 24, 38, Jesus asks, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? They didn't have the belief that this was going to be the risen Savior, that the, that the Savior was going to rise from the dead. They had doubts. In John 20, Jesus has to prove to Thomas that he's risen from the dead. He had doubt. The disciples went into hiding. If they had believed that the Savior was going to rise from the dead, would they have gone into hiding? I don't believe so. And this was prophesied by Jesus. He predicted this. He told them in Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this, because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. He told them he was going to rise from the dead. But they struggled with their belief. Even though Jesus himself told them that he would have to suffer, die, and be raised again. Matthew 8.31 says this, And he began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Why do I keep reading these? Because it shows to you they had been hearing the word from the Lord that he, was, he had to die, but he was going to rise again on the third day. But they struggled in their belief. They struggled in their belief. Another way that he didn't meet their expectations through this passage, meet the expectations of man, is they expected his kingship to look different. They expected his kingship to look different. Here we'll go. This is, uh, let me set this verse up really quick. We'll be in Luke 24, 20. This is sometime after Jesus was raised from the dead. He appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He joined them, but Scripture says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asks them what they're talking about, and here's what they responded with, starting in verse 20 in Luke 24. The chief priests and our rulers, they're talking about the Messiah here, handed him over. So here they are talking to Jesus, telling him this story. They don't recognize who he is based on his form. The chief priests and our elders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Here in verse 21, here's the key. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They expected his kingship to look different. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, a vision of angels. Didn't see angels. They saw a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Here we see this seemingly un, having, still having unbelief, but also we see this. 
They had a different expectation of Jesus' kingship. This isn't how they expected it to look. Verse 21, their expectation was Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, was coming to redeem Israel. That's what they had hoped, that he was coming to redeem Israel. But now, now he's dead is what they told him. So Jesus decides to reveal his identity in verse 25. So Luke 20, starting in verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I don't know how long that short, that Bible study, I call it short, that Bible study would have taken for him to sit down and share with these disciples all of what Moses and the prophets had to say about the coming Messiah. Because this begins in Genesis 3.15, is where we first see this first account. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is reference to Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to experience pain, but he is going to have the final victory. He is going to crush the head of the enemy. So I don't know how long that Bible study took, how long it took him to share all this, but it says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. One key, th- one three, there's three or three words here that really stand out to me when he says how foolish you are and how slow to believe. Men and women who literally walked with Jesus, they walked with him, they talked with him, they witnessed all the countless miracles in his presence. Yet, they were slow to believe. I feel like Jesus was being gracious. He's saying, you didn't just have unbelief, but why are you slow to believe? Why are you slow to believe? So why am I pointing this out? Why am I sharing this about this unbelief that we see through here? More importantly is this, and this is the question that I had. Why do the gospel accounts record this? Why do we see this throughout Scripture where it's continuing to reference the unbelief or the slow belief or the doubt? Why is that happening? I think I have two thoughts as, as to why I think this is. I think one reason here is that we have misaligned expectations of the, the Redeemer. God knows this. We have misaligned expectations of what Jesus was going to do or is supposed to mean for us. We have our own idyllic expectation of Jesus. Secondly, this, God knows the struggle of belief. He warns his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane 
Matthew 26, 41, he says this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He understands that even as the spirit believes and even as the spirit is strong, it's at war with your flesh. And your flesh has doubts and questions and unbelief. These passages speak to the unbeliever, and they, but they also speak strongly to the slow-to-believer, as I'm going to call it. These accounts reveal to us that some of Jesus' closest friends, closest companions, struggled with unbelief or a struggling belief, one that wasn't fully mature. I believe we find ourselves in this very story. What were the expectations we have of the Savior? What are the expectations that we came with when we received Christ? What do we expect out of Jesus? I think the other part here is this, is that your faith is not complete. We think... We like to think, well, I, I believe in God, I have faith in Christ, and it's done at that point. Faith doesn't work that way. Belief doesn't work that way. It's a continuing growth. You continue to grow in your faith. You continue to grow in your belief. Your faith and your belief is not complete like that. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but that's the difference between an ancient culture of, of following Christ and, and today's culture is, is we, we, need it, we need it to happen quick. They understood that this was a process, that this faith was a lifelong process, that when I became old, I would grow to this maturity in faith, that it's going to take years and decades. It's going to take a lifetime. It's uncommon for our culture because we, we don't, we like things, we've, everything we've created is to speed things up. And transformation and faith and discipleship and full belief takes time. It takes time. But here's the good news. So here I am, I'm, I've got the worst message ever this morning. I'm pointing out the people near God the people near Jesus during his time walking on earth, how they had unbelief about him raising from the dead. It sounds like I'm delivering the bad news this morning, I'm, but I'm helping us also in this see ourselves in how we might be struggling in our full belief or how we might have misaligned expectations of what Jesus is supposed to mean to us or what he is supposed to uh, deliver to us. So my first point was this, that Jesus didn't meet man's expectation. My second point is this, Jesus exceeded man's expectation. Jesus didn't meet man's expectation. Jesus exceeded man's expectation. Man's expectation couldn't and still can't see past the finite, the temporal, this world. So this expectation that we might have of Jesus can only see this far. What Jesus delivered to us 
transcends what we can see and understand. He didn't come to redeem Israel as the disciples had expected. He didn't come to redeem America as some of us might expect. What are we expecting of the Savior? The Savior's offering something so much greater. We want the redemption for what we can see and understand, but he's delivering the redemption for all of mankind. He came to redeem mankind according to the great mercy of the Father. 1 Peter 1.3 says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that word, a living hope. Hope being this confident expectation. I, I sum it up as a confident expectation of a future reality. It's not wishful thinking. It's not... I hope, I, I really wish this would happen one of these days. It is this future reality that is impending and is coming. And we can have confidence in that. Why? Because we believe that our Savior rose from the grave. According, notice this, it says, according to his great mercy. Not anything that we've done, not anything that we could do, but according to His mercy. In fact, while we were ungodly, Scripture says, Romans 5 says this, in verse, starting in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So it's in accordance with his mercy. Verse 7 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. According to his mercy, we have received a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you got saved, the old died. And the new has come because he has risen. He is risen. Galatians 2.20 says this, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So today, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, rose from the grave, 
then this is the truth. Hell has no hold on you. As we were singing earlier, there's no reason to fear. There's nothing left to fear because the grave has been conquered. As Jesus says in Revelation, he says this, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's our confident expectation, our living hope that's still living. So here's the good news. We're already dead. Those of us who've put to death the old sinful man and received new life found in the resurrection power of Christ, we are free from death. Some of you people think I'm crazy and maybe getting heretical, but I'm not. We are free from death. That means this, our fate has already been sealed. We can see this impending mortal death. We can, we can change our posture towards it as a joyful anticipation of a transition out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've been given a new spirit found in Christ. The next thing to happen is a transition. When we are going to transition from this world into the next, we're going to be free from the sin and the temptation of sin and the body and the ailments of the body. But we don't have to fear death because we've already been given new life. I'm tempted to get myself a headstone that has a date way back when. (laughs) Put it somewhere so that I can remember I've already died. My old self has gone away. John, this, this, I think this is said well in John eight fifty one. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Scripture says it as plain as day. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we see after the disciples witness the new life of Jesus when they finally came to a belief that Jesus had raised from the dead. What do we see? We see their fear is gone. We see boldness come forth, where they begin to proclaim the name of Jesus, witness what they had, been, what they had seen. New life brings about boldness and courage, and a freedom from fear, only found in the new life 
of Christ. The thought of death for the disciples, the thought of death of Jesus, left them without hope. Our Messiah is gone. Our King is gone. And sometimes we talk about Jesus a lot in terms of we are thankful that he died for our sins. So thankful that Jesus gave his life for us. And we should. We should be thankful. But a lot of times we stop there. A lot of times we stop at the death of our Savior. But I would like to submit this before you this morning, is that there's not a period at the end of the death of Jesus. There's a comma. Because his death isn't the end of the story. And after that comma is where your story really begins. The new life you have in Christ begins when you've been given that new life. When you have put to death the old, your new life begins. That's where all the excitement should begin and happen. It doesn't end at the death. It's merely the starting point for the new life that we have in Christ. But it's all based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So the question is, what am I doing with this newness of life that's a gift from my Father? How am I living with this freedom of fear of death? Living in this boldness, in this courageous, knowing in this courage, knowing that my fate's already been sealed, knowing that I've already inherited eternal life. What am I doing? Because here's the truth. A God who existed before time, a God who spoke all of creation into existence, a God who determined, who determines value and worth for all of creation, a God who has no equal, a God who can't be judged, a God who can't be defeated, a God who loved you in your sin. That's how big our God is. That's how powerful our God is, is the same God who loved you and I enough to send his son to live and to die and to live again. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It was according to his great mercy. So that we might not die in our sin and be reconciled to him. Why? Why would he do this? God loves us. He loves us. He loved us before we loved him. He made a way for us to become reconciled through him, through the resurrection of his son. And as John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So our expectation of the Savior couldn't come close to the value and the worth that he's placed on our lives through his actions. God delivered an expectation 
far greater than we could have imagined. So I'll leave, I want to end this message this morning with these three words. This demonstration in this entire act is summed up in these three words, and that is, God loves you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful that you've called each and every one of us to be your children. We're thankful that you've given us new life. You've brought us out of darkness, Father, into your glorious light. And without that, Father, we are dead. In our, trans, in our transpass, trespasses and our sin, we are dead, God. We are dead to our sin. This act was merciful. It was gracious. There's only one who could be done by, only, only could be done by a loving father. We are so, so thankful. While our eyes are bowed, eyes are closed and heads are so bowed, if, if God is, if you do not know Christ or you're struggling in your belief this morning, God's moving on you right now. God's speaking to you right now. You don't have to do anything special. I don't have to participate in it. You can respond to it by saying, God, I believe in who you are. Or you can say, God, help me grow in my belief. Strengthen my faith. You can commit yourself to that this morning. You can be reconciled to Christ this morning. Father, we pray for the souls this morning that you have brought to yourself. We pray that your spirit has broken down the barrier between the sinful heart and the heart of the Father so that we might receive you. We are thankful for that this morning, God. This morning, we begin to walk in newness of life. We commit ourselves to living in boldness, living with courage, living free from fear of death because we've already received new life in you. There's nothing to fear. Thank you, gracious God, for sending your son to die and be raised again so that we might not have to suffer and die. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning. We are honored that you are here. You're part of the family of God, and we are thankful that you're part of it. If you've made a decision for Christ this morning and you want to follow after him and you're a new believer, come let someone know. Let us help you on a path of getting to know who God is. Amen. Be blessed.